Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. That's exciting. Today we get to continue our sermon series called The Way. We have been in this series for uh, 65 years, I think, is the, uh, rough, the rough total. It, we're finishing uh, the week after Easter, so this will be done, uh, and then in May we'll start something new. And so we're working our way through the book of Luke, and we're working our way towards Easter and a resurrection. And um, so we've left last week, we left the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples, they leave the Passover meal. So we're rejoining Jesus's party as they make their way through the evening. And there's two parts today. So I want to kind of tell you what they are and then we'll go through them together. The first part we're going to talk about is, is really going to be about Jesus and augmented reality, which you didn't see coming. And then part two is going to be, we're going to actually look at, at Peter's denial when he denies Jesus we're going to talk about roosters and whether they were really there or not. And then we're going to um, talk about the relationship between heartbreak and hope. So that's kind of your roadmap today. We're going to get after it because it seems, if it sounds like a lot, it seems like a lot. So we're going to get in Luke 22. Uh, Luke 22, starting in verse 39, the scripture is on the screen there for you. It says this, leaving there, he, Jesus, went, as he so often did, to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when they arrived at the place, he said, pray that you don't give in to temptation. He pulled away from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. He said, Father, remove this cup from me, but please, not what I want. What do you want? And at once an angel from heaven was at his side strengthening him, and he prayed on all the harder. Sweat wrung from him like drops of blood and poured off his face. Verse 45, he got up from prayer. He went back to the disciples and found them asleep, drugged by grief. He said, what business do you have sleeping? Get up and pray so you won't give it a temptation. And no sooner were the words out of his mouth that a crowd showed up and Judas, the one from the twelve, in the lead. He came right up to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said, Judas, you would betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When those, who, uh, with, when those with him saw what was happening, they said, Master, shall we fight? One of them, we learn from another gospel, is Peter. One of them took a swing at the chief priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, let them be, even in this. And so touching the servant's ear, he healed him. Jesus spoke to those who had come, high priests and temple police and religion leaders. He said, what is this? Jumping me with swords and clubs as if I were a dangerous criminal. Day after day, I've been with you in the temple and you've not so much as lifted a hand against me. But do it your way. It's a dark night and a dark hour. So this is a powerful scene. It's a powerful moment. And there's a stark contrast that we see as well in the behavior of the disciples. We see first this startling passivity as Jesus is sweating blood in his, his grief and his anxiety over what's coming. And the disciples are sleeping. And then we see this switch get flipped. And, and now instead of this passivity, we have this wild, impulsive aggression and swords are drawn. And so what I want to do for this first portion and to sort of make sense of this for us today is zoom out a little bit and look at modern faith. Because modern faith is not very different than ancient faith. Modern faith is not different than ancient faith. There's two poles. We tend to kind of gravitate towards that passivity side or the aggressive side. We, we kind of go towards like 
um, you know, Bible canon on the street corner or, hey, let's just keep to ourselves and be peaceable. It's sort of what we do. I've had this passage, this specific passage, um, mentioned to me and used as, as evidence, both for somebody trying to convince me that Jesus was a pacifist and no, there should never be war and, and Christians should lay down their swords and, and just white flags everywhere. And I've also had people tell me that this is the Bible's explanation of why the Second Amendment is right and everyone should have guns. And I'm like, well, those, the same argument, um, it's the same passage with two like polar opposite arguments. What happens is, is scripture often gets hijacked by, by people in all phases. This is because we read ourselves into the text. We tend to slide to one pole or the other. We tend to slide to the defensive pole or the aggressive pole. So some will say we need to win outsiders at all costs. That's what the, the whole point of, of faith is. We have to be out on the street corner. We have to win the outsider at all costs. And then there are others that will lean towards the pole where they'll say, no, no, we have to protect those who are inside the flock at all costs. The, there's a wolf prowling. There's a, an enemy out there. We have to protect the inside. The passage actually is not a theological statement on weapons or peacefulness or anything else. To know what the passage is about, you have to say, who is the passage about? And some will say, it's about Judas, the betrayer. And you go, okay, maybe. And some will say, it's about the disciples and they're lazy. Okay, maybe. Or it's about Peter and his impulsiveness. Maybe. I would actually argue that it's, I mean, this is really going to shock you. You're in church. But I think this passage is about Jesus. (laughs) But it's tempting to make it about others because it's so much easier for us to identify with them, isn't it? It's easier for us to put ourselves in the story in the position of Peter and his impulsiveness or in the position of the disciples who are asleep at the switch or in the position of Judas who who seems to just be always one step from betraying Christ. We've been taught to read through our context. We read the world through our context. We read scripture through our context. We see the world through our own experience, which is no fault of our own, right? You only have the experience you have. You can't read it through my experience because you don't have that. And yet, the call of Jesus is to see a kingdom overlaid upon the world. It's not an either-or. You don't get to be either someone who sees the world clearly or someone who sees the kingdom clearly. Jesus has called us to see the world with the kingdom overlaid upon it. In 2016, um, when our family moved here, I came first, the head of my family by a few days, and so my friend Caleb was generous and willing to ride with me. So we did a two-day road trip from San Antonio, about 1,400 miles here. And so the first day, you know, we barely made it out of Texas, which is super depressing, because you just drive all day, and you're like, we just made it out. We stopped in uh, West Memphis, which is Arkansas, and we ate barbecue. We went to one of those kind of places. You know what, you're, you're, on, you're like, I'm on vacation. Money doesn't count. So we went to this place that had been recommended for incredible Memphis barbecue, and it was incredible, and we did the thing where you're like, can I just sort of have one of every, we just want to try everything. And they looked at us funny, and we hadn't really eaten all day because we'd been in a car, and then we ate everything and, and felt pretty sick. So... Um, I don't have any reason to tell you that except to tell you that this was a lot of fun. We were having a good time. So um, we're having a good time. So w- what we did is we made our way through and uh, stopped in, in Memphis. And my, my dumb friend, you know, I'm like, this, is, this guy's been so great to me. He's my best friend. But he's driving me insane because the whole trip I'm driving and he's playing Pokemon Go. I didn't even know what this is. He's like, uh, you know, five, six years younger than me. He lives in a different world than I lived in. So I felt like I was 100 years old. He's like, no, you don't get it, dude. And he'd hold up his phone, like at a rest stop or at a gas station. He'd hold up his phone, and, and there he would see 
normal, like the camera app is open, except he would see creatures, like Pokemon creatures, overlaid upon the regular world. Here's a, a, a screenshot of what someone would see. So you're just walking through Winter Garden, and there's this thing, I don't know what that is, Pikachu, it's not him. Um, I, have no, I literally have no clue. Um, and this is what it would look like. So we'd be at a rest stop, and he'd be like, hold on, i got to go catch this one. And I'd be like, catch what? Because I can't see anything. And he's like following, he's tripping over things, he's kind of getting through, and he's grabbing things, and he's like, this is awesome. This trip is like, gonna, I'm going to be like so in the lead. And I was like, I don't know what we're doing. And, and that's what we did. We got here, and he went on a run in Winter Garden, and he literally stopped and played Pokemon in the middle of Winter Garden and met somebody else who was also doing it. And they like became friends. He had friends here before I did. And because he was out, he was, he was living, and this was one of the early adaptations of it, he was living in augmented reality, which was reality with a layer on it that I couldn't see. He lived in a world where he saw what I saw, and yet he had a layer on it that I didn't have. He was seeing not only the world that I saw, but he saw the Pokemon Go world layered on top of that. So anywhere he put his phone up, he could see things I couldn't. He was living in a new reality. And for me, outside of it, he just looked like an insane person. But for everybody else on the inside of it, it sounds like faith, it made a lot of sense. He had a digital layer on top of his real life. And so throughout our two-day journey, that's what he did. So this passage is about that. This passage is about Jesus, and Jesus' call upon us to see life in multiple layers, to engage our faith in multiple layers layers, to engage both the here and now and the eternal. And this passage is, is just narrative. It's just about Jesus being arrested. I mean, that's what it's, it's telling a story. But when we zoom out and go, what do we learn from it? That's what we're learning, that there's two things happening. And, and when we're only living in the world we can see, with the disciples, they don't know what's happening. They don't see the eternal, so they're sleeping. Or, or Peter doesn't understand how this is part of a bigger story, so he's taking out his sword. And what Jesus is, is operating at is, is a level beyond them, where he sees multiple layers at all times. And so this becomes a question to us as we place ourselves in the story about whether we see the larger story around us, whether we're seeing reality as it is or the reality he has invited us into, which is this kingdom reality overlaid on top of the earthly reality we live in. That's what faith does. That's what the Spirit does. It opens our eyes to a new reality. It doesn't change where we are. We don't float through the clouds when we become followers of Christ, but we get a new layer and we see differently as a result. Every day we have a choice to live life with that kingdom layer or to leave it off. To live like me, wondering what my friend is doing around the back of the gas station, chasing a Charizard or whatever it was. I don't know what he's doing. And I was just clueless. Or to live like him and go, I got two layers at all times. This is, life is, is good. I would say this is actually kind of like gospel centrality. Every day we have a choice to see ourselves in light of the gospel or not. Basically, to live out the story of eternity or to sleepwalk through the moment. So we can live gospel-centered, which is living out a purpose bigger than ourselves, seeing the kingdom reality that not everyone else can see and being confident in it. Or we can live self-centered, which is what happens when we lose the plot and we delude ourselves into thinking that this is our story and it's about us and all you can see is what you can see and that's all there is anyway. And more often than not, more days than most of us would want to admit, we live self-centered lives. We are not living a gospel-centered life most days, or, or most hours of most days. Maybe here and there, maybe my morning devotional, maybe Sunday morning, maybe Sunday afternoon, it kind of leaks out. I got a good Sunday afternoon out of it. 
But most days, we live with what we can see and touch and feel, and we leave off that second layer. And that's where we go sideways. While we're talking about road trips, I made that road trip that year, since you asked. Um, the next year, 2017, uh, my family, we're all here, we've been here for a year, and we make a couple different road trips. We'd first take a trip to uh, New York City, and um, it was just kind of a family vacation. It was drivable, and it was about 11 hours of traffic and all the things that happened between one place and another. And then we made a second trip later in the year, we got invited to a wedding. Uh, a friend of mine, I was in a wedding in, in D.C., and so it was about eight hours. So we made these multiple uh, road trips, and they were a lot of fun. We got good pictures out of it that we'll show you, and you can, ooh, and ah, look at my kid. Look at that. Come on. Come on. It was fun. Made some memories. Got some good pictures. Um, they're kind of too young to know what's happening in some sense. They're like, we went to the White House? We're like, yeah, never mind. Here's the thing about road trips. You know there's two different types of road trips. There's road trips, and then there's road trips with kids. Road trips are like fun, and you're like living in the moment. Let's have all the barbecue we can eat. And then there's road trips with kids, whew, which is a trip. And there's a lot of agendas in that car. So we, we take that. I take the road trip with my friend, and we're just living for the moment. We're eating all we can. With the, there's four agendas in the car at all times on these next two road trips. Someone has to pee, someone is hungry, someone is bored, someone is car sick, whatever, it doesn't matter. Someone's always something, and everybody always knows what everybody is. And the, the problem with a road trip is if you lean into every whim on the road trip, you never get where you're going, which creates this really delicate tension that every road trip needs. Because a road trip is only awesome if you enjoy the journey, right? But a road trip only makes sense if you actually get to the destination. Otherwise, you're just a weirdo, and you become a gypsy, and you're driving aimlessly through the countryside. So you kind of have to choose a lane on that. So you have to enjoy the journey, but you have to get to the destination. And the problem with the agendas is all of the agendas, if we had listened to every time someone was pee and car sick and hungry and bored and whatever, we'd never have gotten where we were going. Hey, Hershey, Pennsylvania, let's stop there. I wanted to stop uh, in Pennsylvania. There's a rest stop near where one of the flights from 9-11 went down in that field in Shanksville. I was like, I could stay here for a couple days. I'd read a book, and then I'd go to the site. And, then, and they're like, this is not why we're here. We're going to New York, you fool. And yet, we all had our agendas. Enjoy the journey and get to the destination. It feels like an either-or, though. So for every dad, this is sort of a dad's lane in the world. Dad's lane is to get there as fast as possible with as few stops as possible. Dads are the ones who say, hold it first. Or ask the question, how long can you hold it? I'm prone to asking for a number. Hey, so like, what number is it? And like, what are you talking, one or two? I'm like, no, 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 not those numbers. What, you'll get it eventually. What number, like, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being like, this is an emergency. Oh, it's like a 6. And I'm like, oh, well, tell me when it's an 8 and a half, and then we'll start looking for an exit, you know? When you're shaking uncontrollably, then I'll start looking for a place. And, you know, we end up in a cornfield somewhere is about the best we can do. <laughs> this is the life of faith. Is there is a journey we're called to enjoy. There's a journey we're called to be fully engaged in and... There's a destination where we must keep our, our gaze at all times. So we have to be able to do both. There's two things happening at all times. And when we fail, when we're only destination-minded, then we're just longing to live in the sweet by and by when I can be at Jesus' bosom and all this can be behind me. And that's one thing, and that's not real helpful because God didn't leave you here so that you would be absent from this place. But if we only live in the world then we're missing out on the kingdom layer that he's given us too and we end up falling into all the traps that are there. Some of us have lost sight of the destination. We sleepwalk through life. Other of us have lost sight. We've lost sight of the heaven, and we are forgetting to be present here on earth. 
Jesus' friends are just like us, is what we're seeing. They, they kind of didn't have the narrative. They didn't have the layers. And so Messiah seems stressed, but man, I sure am tired. Or Jesus is pretty intense, but I'm super full from Passover dinner. Or they're here to arrest him. It's my time to shine. They were the central character in their story. So who is the central character in your life? When you live with Jesus as a central character in your life, you cannot help but be engaged on both planes. When you live with Jesus as the central character in your life, you cannot help but be engaged on both planes because you are here now and you have to face that, but you have Jesus in eternity, as Greg said, is happening now, and we engage on that level as well. When you're the central character of your life, well, then you engage in the world and nothing else because it's all that you have. So if you haven't let go of yourself, if you haven't lost yourself in God's unfolding story, there becomes a wall between you and what you were created for. I would say it this way, grace only exists where self-preservation has died. Grace only exists where self-preservation has died. What I mean by that is this. We can't give away the life of Jesus if we're too busy living the life of self because you can't risk it. It's too risky. But when we've already lost our life to Jesus, when we've already given up our life to Jesus, then we live in an eternal security which gives us a freedom and an abandonment to live and give away grace everywhere we go. That's where we find the balance between journey and destination. John 12, 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life or loses their life in this world will keep it for eternity. It's paradoxical, but it's real, and it's true, and it's the way the kingdom overlays upon. If you lose your life here, you actually live the life you were created for. So are you holding on to life as the central character, or are you letting go and seeing the new reality that Jesus is having for you to offer? Luke 22, uh, verse 54, we keep the story going. Arresting Jesus, they marched off, and they took him into the house of the chief priests, and Peter followed, but at a safe distance. In the middle of the courtyard, some people had started a fire and were sitting around it, trying to keep warm. And one of the serving maids sitting in the fire noticed him and took a second look and said, this man was with him, and he denied it. He said, woman, I don't even know him. A short time later, someone else noticed him and said, you're one of them, and Peter denied it. He said, man, I am not. About an hour later, someone else spoke up, really adamant. He's got to have been with him. He's a Galilean. He has Galilean written all over him. And Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And at that very moment, the last word hardly off his lips, a rooster crowed. And just then, the master turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered what the master had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and cried and cried and cried. So first, let's talk about this rooster. I was clueless about this until 2019. I was lucky enough to get chosen to go on this trip to Israel. I'm in Jerusalem with this Jewish guide, and he starts walking me through this truth about the rooster. You can also read this. I'll post this on on all our social medias. You can read this in a book by a guy named Mark Turnage. It's called Windows on the Bible. So if you want to write that down, great. If you want to check social media later, we'll put it out there. Windows on the Bible by Mark Turnage. But here's the the fact that I was unaware of until uh, 2019. Roosters were not allowed in Jerusalem. Just an unequivocal fact. Roosters were not allowed in Jerusalem. In fact, if you ask the people, they've dug up everything. If you ever get a chance to go, everything is an excavation site. Everything is a historical excavation. Everything is being looked at and and dug through and sifted through, and there's bones and coins, and everything is history. And so you can't build anything without it becoming an official government excavation, and they keep everything. And they will tell you, you go back 2,000 years, 5,000, you don't find chicken bones in Jerusalem. 
Roosters don't live in Jerusalem. There's no rooster in Jerusalem. It's just true. Why? Because the rooster was an unclean animal. The rooster walks around and defiles wherever it wants to. The rooster will also, think about it, they don't have a a nice recycling service that comes every Tuesday. There's trash piles and there's things that are burning. And the rooster, when hungry, will walk around and those of you who have roosters, it will just peck it whatever it wants to, and it will walk with it wherever it wants to, and it'll drop it somewhere else. And, and so they just try to take filth, and they reposition it, and then they are filth, and they leave filth wherever they are as they go about their life. And so you cannot have that in the holy city. You cannot have it in Jerusalem, because it would defile holy places. It's not worth the risk. So roosters weren't allowed. Chickens weren't allowed in Jerusalem, which creates a problem for us, because the text says that there's a rooster who crowed. So is it possible the Bible is wrong? Because this rooster has a pretty prominent role, I'm going to tell you. So the Greek word, elector, not that you cared, can also mean man. Rooster, but it can also mean man. You know, like the the term cockfight? That's a word out there. Well, all of a sudden, these words start to blend in because the Hebrew Hebrew phrase that's in other texts of the the era, the Mishnah and other Jewish texts, the Hebrew phrase for uh, the rooster crow or the rooster call was either cock's call cock-a-doodle-doo, or man's call. Those words were interchangeable in in Hebrew and in Greek. Man, cock, man, rooster, they were all kind of the same word. Okay, so it gets more interesting. In the temple each morning, the priest would clear the ashes from the altar. So people would bring their sacrifices throughout the day, and, and each morning, early in the morning, the priest would clear the ashes from the altar as they prepared for another day's worth of visitors. This was a time, when they were done with this, this, this time in all the ancient texts you read, this time was called, was called cock crow, or cock's call. Why? Because it signaled the beginning of the workday in the temple. So you're like, oh, like on a farm where the rooster crows, and that's how you know, ish, but not really. What would happen, there's a picture here, I'm going to show you what's happening. This is the uh, corner of the temple, and you can see there's a little archway kind of in there with a, a window-ish thing. And the thinking is that some of that was built after Jesus' time. There's the guy on the top right, and he's standing in this little cutout, kind of a ledge. And there's words, there's an inscription. They found the stone dated back to this exact time, and the inscription on that stone is the place of trumpeting. And, and from all the ancient texts, what we know is this person would come out from the temple once the ashes had been cleared, and it's usually early in the morning to start the day for the new temple workday. And this person would come out, and he would blow his trumpet three times. Maybe it was the ram's horn. Maybe they had a brass trumpet. I don't know. But he would blow the trumpet three times. First, he would blow a sustained blow. You know, you can imagine it. And then there would be a quavering one. And then another sustained. And, and you'd be like, okay. Yeah, I think it's funny, too. I'm not very good at the mouth horn. Leave it alone. He comes out to the ledge to say to the city, the temple is open and the temple day has started. And this is how he did it. They did it on Shabbat in a whole other way. On Shabbat, the same ledge would be used and the person would go out near sundown. Because all work must cease, because remember, the Jewish day starts at sundown. And so they'd go out on a Friday night because Shabbat is Saturday and Saturday starts what we would think of as Friday night. And they'd go out and they'd blow it once and that was for people out in the fields. This is the loudest one they got. This is telling them, hey, you have about enough time to put your tools down and get in. The second one would be blown again, and that would be for people in the city. Shop owners, close up your shops. You have time to get home, but let's go. And the third one was for actually for the people in the home, making the dinner, preparing the meals, whatever, to go, you have a very little time, 
and then Shabbat is coming, and you need to stop. So this ledge was like highly used. It's mentioned everywhere. It is the place of coxcrow or the coxcall. This is a part of Jewish life. It's a part of everyday life, which is what I think makes it so beautiful. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, is fully familiar with it, so it's the middle of the night. Jesus is arrested. Peter is heartbroken. And around a fire in the city, he denies that he knows Jesus. Maybe he relocates to a different fire. I don't know if I want to be around these people there. They're on to me. And then he denies again, and maybe he finds a new spot looks away for other condemning eyes, and then he denies a third time, and it's been a long night. In fact, probably so long of a night that it's almost morning. And at that moment, from the temple ledge, the cock crow comes forth, sustained, and then quavering, and sustained, the temple is open for the day. It's so human, right? It's so normal. Before morning, Jesus has said, when the daily trumpet blasts, you'll deny me. But not, not only does this add earthiness and richness to the story, I think it, it makes it more beautiful to me because Jesus is just utilizing the rhythms of the day, not a magical bird that wouldn't have otherwise been in the city that doesn't have any explanation, but there was a rooster that one day and with its perfect red comb stood on the edge at Bob Evans. And, you know, it's like, no. And maybe, like, it doesn't say it wasn't a bird. So you might throw all this out and be like, I want to believe it's a bird. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change who Jesus is. So you can do that if you want to. The beauty of it to me is that it adds into the earthiness and the beauty and the richness and the texture. that This was not an abnormal thing that Jesus told Peter, hey, basically before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me. And Peter, not even thinking about the rhythms of the day, when's the last time you noticed the sunrise? That you went out and you were like, the sunrise is what I'm here for. You only noticed it because it was in your eyes as you were driving somewhere early in the morning. You're like, ah, oh, the stupid sun. You don't even think about it. But denying Jesus three times and then hearing that trumpet call, he went, oh, that's it. It was background noise until it revealed Peter's heartbreak in its fullness. This matters because Peter is known as the apostle of hope. Throughout scripture, he's the apostle of hope. And we find him here in this moment, in this earthy, rich texture, we find him in his greatest moment of hopelessness. And that's why we identify with Peter so much, because he's impulsive and he's us on that level. But he's also a denier, and he's also falling short, and he's also a little bit of a failure. And he's also who Jesus chooses to build his church on later. And in this moment of heartbreak, I would argue that heartbreak comes from a lost hope. And that lost hope then leads to new heartbreak. Where the hope of the kingdom fades, then a lie shows up. So for Peter, his hope was dashed. Right? He is maybe Jesus' most enthusiastic disciple. And then the Messiah is arrested. And all the things Peter must have imagined happening, and Jesus frees the Jewish people, and Jesus leads them to the new kingdom, and all the things that Peter had built up in his mind seem to be falling apart in the moment, in the garden. What is happening? And Peter's heartbreak is due to his hopelessness. All of the things he had built his life on these years, he'd been following this Jesus, he'd walked away from the family business, and he looks up and he goes, wait, what? Peter had lost hope in the kingdom of heaven. And the lie comes in in that moment. When his heartbreak and his hopelessness are at its peak, the lie comes in and whispers that it's all over, that it was not real, that it's all going to end. So he's confused, and he's scared, and his hopes fade, 
and then he engages the lie. And the cock crow calls out, and he's heartbroken all over again, because the heartbreak and the hopelessness leads back into a kind of a, a cycle of doom, where heartbreak leads to more hopelessness, which leads to more heartbreak, because as we engage the lie, we just keep falling down further in that well. The problem is we begin to engage the lie when we can't see hope on the horizon. If you look at your life and the places where you struggle most deeply, you engage the lie of the enemy where you have lost hope on the horizon. You give up on your marriage because you can't see it ever getting better. You give up on yourself because you can't see yourself kicking that habit. You give up on faith because you can't see how this connects to reality. When we lose hope, that's when we begin to listen to the whisper of the enemy that is always present. And so like Peter, we hear whispers in our vulnerable moments, and when we lose sight of hope, we set our eyes on lesser things. We allow the lie to linger just a little bit longer. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you came in and you have a heartbreak. You're heartbroken over something, and you feel hopeless in it. Or maybe you felt hopeless, and it's led you to that heartbreak. Either way, we all know the spot that Peter's in. We all have been there before. Whether you're in it this moment or you just know it from past days, we've all been in the spot where we know and we feel that kind of gut punch moment where you go, oh, what's it all about? And the only path out of that cycle, out of that doom loop, the only path out, as we're going to see with Peter, is through Jesus. It's not a practical three-step process. It's not an easy application point you can do in 10 minutes a day. It's Jesus. His resurrection is our restoration. His resurrection is our restoration. And so as we navigate through the life and we're, we're hearing the lie and we're engaging with hopelessness and heartbreak in the moment, as we find ourselves in dark places, as we find ourselves denying him, as we find ourselves living a me-centered life instead of a God-centered life, as we find ourselves in those alleys around those fires with those people going, I don't even know him. I don't want anything to do with him. The answer is the resurrection. Because the promise of the resurrection is that our momentary hopelessness, that our momentary affliction cannot withstand his eternal beauty and grace. That it is overwhelmed by him. So what we're going to do today is kind of leave on that note. Kind of a bummer note, to be honest. Easter's a couple weeks away. We're going to get there. Next week, Jesus is going to be led further into this. Next week, Jesus is going to be led to Pilate. Two weeks from now, Jesus is going to be crucified. Three weeks from now, we're going to see him resurrected. We're going to experience and celebrate that together. But we have to sit in kind of the tension for a week and recognize that when we lack hope in a thing, we end up listening to the lie. And our only hope out of it is to put ourselves back where we belong in the story that God has given us, to put God central in the story again, and then to look for Jesus and ask him to bring the hope back to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are uh, grateful for the example of Peter. It helps us identify, it helps us see ourselves in the story, and yet, um, God, this is not a story about us pray that you would give us the eyes to see ourselves in your story, that we would see ourselves within your eternity. Lord, help us to see a world in augmented reality with your kingdom overlaid upon everything. And may that, Lord, may that promise of wholeness, may that restore our hope. 
Because in the world we see, Father, we see loss and we see war and we see pain and we see abandonment and we don't see much way out. So Father, I pray that the kingdom layer overlaid upon this earth would show us the hope that we long for, would show us the grace and the beauty that you've called us to. So God, find us seeking you first and living in a world centered on you and you alone. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.